and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hey, hey, legends. Welcome back for another episode of Challenges That Change Us. I hope you are absolutely crushing it and thriving in your own lanes. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to take a moment to talk to you guys. We recently received our 2004 Spotify stats and guess what? We are still rocking the Aussie charts. A massive shout out to each of you who tune in every single week. It blows my mind that we have almost 300 listeners on Spotify who have crowned us as their most listened to podcast. And nearly 700 of you are ranking us in your top five. I am genuinely humbled. Your support means the world. Thank you for being the best community ever. And I really was blown away when I read those statistics. Now let's talk about today's extraordinary episode featuring the one and only John Wyman. Naming this podcast was a challenge in itself because believe me, we cover a lot of ground. John generously opens up about his journey of waiting and ultimately receiving a life-changing liver transplant. I initially thought this would be our focal point, right? But our conversation took unexpected turns as we explored the traumas and challenges that led him down the difficult road of alcohol dependence. What unfolds is a beautiful, heartfelt conversation, rich with challenges, heartache, raw honesty, and profound wisdom. I must admit, Tears were shared multiple times throughout this interview, yet it left me feeling really uplifted and encouraged to embrace life with absolute vigor. Now it's time to dive into this incredible interview with John. Trust me, you don't want to miss it. Welcome, John, to Challenges That Change Us. Thank you for coming on this morning for me, but I think it is at night over there. It is uh, six uh, 5.15. PM? PM, yes. John, I love to start every episode with asking our guests, what animal best describes you and what is it in particular about that animal? I thought about this and initially I would have said a dog, fun, playful, loyal, and that's not the answer. The answer is tiger. And the reason I say tiger is I have a passion for life like a tiger. I literally treasure living every day and I go after it every day. And the passion of a tiger is really important to me. It's my will to live is because I'm a tiger. And ironically, I come from a Princeton family whose mascot was a tiger. <laughs> so it's a small world. <laughs> the Princeton Tigers. <laughs> I was going to ask you when you said you come from a family in Princeton, where are you actually living? Like, where do you live now and where in the world will we find you? I grew up in uh, New York in a town called Pelham right outside the Bronx and moved to Greenwich, Connecticut, and then moved to Baltimore. I am living on the Chesapeake Bay on the water 
and I love it. I'm not too far from, you would recognize, uh, Johns Hopkins Hospital, not too far from there. You were just mentioning about having a passion for really living, like living your life the way that you want to live it, enhancing and attacking every single day. I think that we are going to hear about that throughout this whole interview. So I have lots of questions around what that looks like and what that means for you. But what I'm really wanting to do is hold on to that because I think if we hear your story first, it's going to make so much more sense as to where that tiger part inside you has really come from and developed. So maybe the best place to start might be the day that you walked into the hospital. What happened on that day? I walked into the hospital with stomach pain. And it was in denial about a lot. And after four hours of testing, each time they came in, they were less friendly. And I was like, oh, wow, this is serious. This is serious. And the doctor came in after four hours with a reluctant look on their face and said, all right, John, here's the deal. You're in complete liver failure. You keep doing what you're doing. You'll be dead in two months. And I said, okay, I'll stop. And I stopped immediately. I always told myself that, well, it was easy to stop drinking because I didn't want to die. Come on, that's common sense. You don't want to die. Well, that was a lie. The truth was, and I literally admitted this to myself within the last month, the truth was I thought dying would hurt. And I didn't have the strength to go through that pain. I thought dying would hurt. I'm like, no, I don't want that. I'll I'll do anything not to have that pain. The fear was what was the biggest thing in that moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And John, when you say complete liver failure, what gets you to there and what does that actually mean? The reality of it is I was diagnosed with cirrhosis. Cirrhosis, it took me six months to say the word cirrhosis out loud in a room by myself. I have gastro problems. I have stomach issues. Cirrhosis was hard to say and admit because to me, cirrhosis was the drunk on the corner with the brown bag who just drank too much and he couldn't stop it and all that. And But what it meant is my body was shutting down. For example, I remember one time before I went to the hospital, I said stomach pain. Too much information for you too early. But I sat on the toilet for 13 hours. I could not go for 13 hours. I don't know whether I need to applaud you for your patience there or be in shock that it took 13 hours. And guess what? I wasn't successful. I had bruises all over my body. I mean, if I would just knock into a little bit of something, there would be a big bruise. Again, my eyes were yellow. And what I would do, jaundice, I would put Visine in them because I was in complete denial. And if I'm being honest with you, I'm not so sure I wanted to live. And I literally admitting right now, I didn't want to live for years. The drinking was an escape for that five hours at the bar every night. I didn't think about all the pain in my life. That had been going on for, I'd say, 20 years. 
I remember in high school, I'm the fifth child. In our yearbook for high school, we have our senior quotes. Mine was from Bruce Springsteen. Baby, this town rips the bones from your back. It's a death trap. It's a suicide rap. We got to get out while we're young. That was my senior quote, and no one in my family picked up on it. I was screaming for help, screaming for it. My parents were going through a horrible divorce. My father basically left my mother homeless on the streets of New York City to marry his secretary. And I'm living with the secretary and him and her sister and her husband and me. And I'm screaming out, I need help. And no one heard me. So people heard me in the bar. They definitely heard me in the bar because I was the funniest guy. I was a popular guy. And that five hours at the bar just took me away from everything. It was, it was a break from the pain. I was in denial about all the pain. And on some level, every day, I admit more pain to myself. Is that hard? You know, as you're talking now, I can sort of hear that that is still really challenging. I embrace it. I work as a marriage counselor. I worked with one of the best in the world, a guy by the name of Dr. James Masterson. And he told me, John, you have to realize in treatment, it's six months before they stop lying. And it's not they went to one grocery store when they went to another. It's stuff that's so painful that you don't want to admit to yourself. For example, thinking out loud now, from the time I was five years old, every time I look in the mirror, I see someone stupid. 55 years later, I still see stupid. That's what I see. Can I jump through and give you a couple? <laughs> I'm just like, oh, I'm feeling that five-year-old right yeah, now. I, 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 oh. I, but it feels so good to be out of that prison. To be able to say that without the pain of it, because that was a secret I kept to myself. That, you know, and being the fifth child in my family, I was never like heard. And I remember as a kid, I was five. My oldest sister had some friends over and she said, watch this. And literally people would come over and say, hey, Patrice, Timmy, Peter, Ellen, and what's his name? These people didn't know my name. They forgot it. And I learned, my sister said, watch this. She asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. There was a cartoon, Yogi Bear. Yogi wasn't the guy I loved. I loved Boo Boo. Boo Boo was his loyal dog companion, right, that walked with him. And I didn't communicate it right. So my sister says, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I thought of boo-boo, but I said wrong. I said, I want to be a pink dog. And I was thinking of boo-boo. I just didn't communicate it right. And they're like, can you believe this kid? This kid actually thinks he can be a dog. That's how stupid he is. And mysteriously, then they remembered my name. To this day, when I go into the grocery store and I see a new employee putting away the milk, I walk right up to him and I say, excuse me, can you tell me where the milk is? And he's like, what? And like 10 people from the store say, that's just John. He's fucking with you. <laughs> and I'm still doing these behaviors of, hey, you know, and 
it's about, for me, the childhood injury of needing to be heard. And Allie, it's not an accident that I'm in a, a field, my career is a field where, you know what, Allie, you want your marriage fixed? You better hear me. <laughs> it's, it's almost embarrassing to say that. All right. Now, look, I'm healing a wound from my own childhood by you listening to me. I look at the positive perspective of it. I can hear as you're talking, there's so much work that you have done to be able to even sit here and have that conversation with me today, right? Like to be able to get those words up and out of your mouth and out of your body to say, this is what happened and this is how I felt in that moment and this is how it transpired throughout my life is massive. Thank you. Thank you. I, I Again, I look at the positive of being diagnosed with cirrhosis, given two months to live, was the best Thing that ever happened to me in my life was being given two months to live because I, I really take the time to appreciate every day. Do you know what I did for five minutes two days ago? I stared at a butterfly and I looked and saw how cool that butterfly was. I never noticed like the beauty of it. It was so cool. And I could hear people saying, that guy's crazy. No, take the time to look at things you just don't take the time to look at. I mean, every morning I have my coffee on the water and I love watching the squirrels run through the yard and they're so cool the way they're hunting. And I'm like, well, I'm hunting too. I, I look for stuff every day. So it's, again, I look at the positive perspective of being basically given a death sentence. Can you just give us a little bit of a glimpse into your life before you walked into the hospital? What did your hard days, worst days look like before that moment? Alone. In a simple word, alone. And I'm thinking out loud here. I I think I was alone most of my life. When I started drinking, I remember it was in seventh grade. In sixth grade... My two best friends, Mark Laviel and Mike Morrissey, we walked to school together every day. Wasn't alone. And they came up to me and said, we can't be friends with you anymore because we like girls and you're not cool enough to. And walked away from me. And I was like, wow, seventh grade. And I learned, because I was very shy, that if I got drunk, I could talk to anybody. And I would make a fool of myself. and at an early age, but I learned that alcohol and drugs, they were mechanisms for me to connect to people. And for people to connect to you sounds more important so that people saw you, heard you, connected with you, talked to you. Absolutely. And on a a side note of that, and it's one of the reasons I'm alive today, I, I went to this super elite private school a place called the Hill School, one of the nicest private schools in the country. And Allie, you know what I learned from that education? 28 grams in an ounce. We used to sell two pounds of uh, weed marijuana every week. And I'll never forget it. I played American football. And as a kid, we went for my oldest brother to go to the school. And on the last play of the game, This guy lost the game for my school. 
and I'm being the fifth child, I just kind of wander away as the game's over. And I walk up to this guy and he's crying. And it affected my soul at eight years old. And I thought, wow, that's a lot of pain. That will never be me. I will win this game. Fast forward seven years and I'm getting high and I hand the weed to my roommate and I say, that's it. I'm not getting high or drinking again until I beat Lawrenceville. My roommate said, you're crazy. You'll be getting high tomorrow. And I said, no, I won't. And I kept that promise. That was uh, about six months. It's the day of the game. I was a quarterback and a kicker. And my father comes to the locker room. Can I talk to you? I'm like, sure, Dad, what's what's got me? You know, where's mom? You know, and he says, Well, that's why I want to talk to you about. And he takes me into the hall and says, Oh, oh I want you to know your mother and I are getting divorced. This is before the most important moment in my life. Now, at 15 years old, Allie, I can't say, you know, Dad, I gave up six months drinking and drugging. And you did tell me this now? I couldn't do that. (laughs) I will say that I kicked the winning field goal to win the game. I did it. I, I won the game. And talk about an empty feeling. I looked in the stands for my mom. She wasn't there. It was so painful that here was this moment. All I wanted was my mom to be proud of me. You know, what did I do that night? I got hammered, got drunk, got high. And, you know, again, continued along that road. Alcohol and drugs were a way for me to connect to people. It really didn't matter how much, I mean, I could drink. And I will say as the alone thing, And this is embarrassing. After my divorce, I had an apartment and the apartment was a disaster area. Clothes all over the place. The television's on 24 hours a day. And Allie, you know what I learned? Those clothes on the floor were friends. I didn't feel alone in the chaos of my apartment. And when I cleaned it up every once in a while, all I felt was emptiness. It was really hard. It was hard. I I mean, alone is, um, you know, Robin Williams once said, I used to think the worst thing in the world was being alone. It's not. The worst thing in the world is being with someone who makes you feel alone. And I, I chose a lot of people that have made me feel alone. It's tough. It's tough being alone and having to admit that to you is hard. I appear and sound like a very outgoing person. And yes, I've learned to be, but in my profession, all I want to do is connect with my clients. That's why uh, I work seven days a week. I work, I don't know, 15 hours a day, seven days a week. Now you do that. Oh, yeah. We need to have another conversation (laughs) after this episode. Okay. So no, but I think what I'm hearing is that it's really like, it's heartbreaking for me and gut-wrenching when I listen to your story, not from a place of, I feel sorry for me, from a place of like deep wound, you know, as I listen, I'm just like, I can hear the child. 
I can hear the teenager that looked up for his mom. I can hear the young adult that is like, I need someone in my corner. And there's no one there except for the person behind the bar or the guy on the bar still next to me that's laughing at my jokes. Like I can feel and sense that aloneness as you're talking. Allie, my high school graduation, no one in my family went to. I didn't even go to my college graduation (laughs) alone. I was there alone. Do you think you were aware of this at the time or is this on reflection now when you look back? Denial's not just a river. (laughs) Denial's a pretty powerful coping mechanism. I was just happy to be done high school, college at, so what? Uh, You know, I'm working with Dr. Masterson. I was going to school full-time and working full-time. You know, I got a great job. Uh, This is great. You know, it's interesting as we get deeper. My first wife, six months into it, she says to me, I want to know where it's going because I want to get married. And did you hear the word love in there? Because I didn't. And I said, okay. Why did I say okay? Because I didn't want to be alone. You know, and I see that clearly now. And you know, I knew from the beginning we were not a good match. And I looked for acceptance, you know, for 14 years and didn't really face how alone I felt in that marriage. I was very alone. And lo and behold, what did I do? I started drinking at a bar and connecting with people, you know. So, you know, the alone thing, yeah, it, it, it's been a long time. Hey everyone, I've got an amazing opportunity for all of us to meet face-to-face live in a room. Let's run a DISC personality profiling workshop for your team. Doesn't it suck as a leader when you feel like you're saying one thing, but it's not translating to your team? Or when a colleague does a task in a certain way that makes your jaw drop or your eye twitch? What is the one thing that your workplace needs right now to elevate your team's performance? It's a common language of communication. DISC is a simple yet powerful framework that helps us understand how your team responds, relates and behaves to one another. By the end of this workshop, you'll walk away with a step-by-step guide to effective communication and have some fun and some laughs with the team along the way. I'd recommend Ali. She's um, fantastic at what she does, but also brings a high level of passion and commitment to the program. It's just the simplicity of it. It's not overcomplicated. It's straightforward and it's analytical. The overwhelming feedback was that they thoroughly enjoyed it and came out with some really useful tools to be able to engage and to use in their um, work life and their home life. With over 40 years of research and testing, DISC is not just a buzzword. It is a time tested tool that delivers profound results. If you're ready to unlock your team's full potential, drive engagement and elevate performance, or perhaps just even a little bit curious about how this can help you, get in touch with me today via email or LinkedIn. Now back to challenges that change us. We absolutely started with walking into the hospital, into what psoriasis, and then we went to... (laughs) And I'm like really torn between sitting in this space and opening it up. But I really also also want to honor the space of what you went through medically and how that has influenced and impacted you today to be able to go back and do this work. Because what I heard really early on in this episode was that day changed my life for the better. 
even though the words that came across my table were you're not going to be around for very long. Yeah. Allie, the reason I wanted to talk to you is I know that no one would stop drinking. Oh, Allie, you shouldn't drink. You know, you shouldn't. That's not going to stop anyone. But I will tell you, and I'm going to tell you my story. No one, and I mean no one, wants to go through what I did. I died four times. I had two strokes. One, I was on life support for five days. Seizures where I flatlined. Dozen surgeries. 4,000 pounds of fluid drained from my body. 50 pounds, 20 liters every two weeks for a long time. Cirrhosis takes away all your strength. It destroys the main protein in your body, and you don't think you're weak, but you are. You know, and also the transplant world, I waited 12 years, and you have to learn and accept. It's about money. Johns Hopkins, which I mentioned, they wouldn't even talk to me to consider me for a transplant. They're 10 miles away from me. And the reason they weren't is they took too many people that weren't committed to living. I'll never forget, I had my transplant two and a half hours away in Philadelphia at Penn. And Dr. Shaked, who I owe my life to, he, uh, I'm sitting with 12 doctors, and he says to me, John, you messed up your liver. Why should we give you one? And I said to him, Dr. Shaked, I guarantee you, I am making it to that table. After that, it's your turn. You got to do the rest. But I'm making it there. There's no doubt in my mind. And that was before the strokes, before the seizures, before the dozen surgeries, before all the fluid drained. It was before all that. But I guaranteed him. And he said to me, John, as you were talking, I was looking around at all the doctors here. Normally, we take six months to make a decision, but everyone nodded yes. So as far as I'm concerned, you're accepted. A credit to him is I'm outside the surgery, the operating room for my transplant. And I, he comes walking by and he goes, you ready, John? And I said, yeah, Dr. Shaked, you remember what I said? I saw him four times in 12 years, no more than an hour. And he says to me, yeah, John, I remember. It's my turn now. I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) I couldn't believe he remembered that. You know, I also, along the way, um, the number's now 15. I saw 15 people die having what I had. I'm the only one alive. That's kind of tough. Oh, by the way, yeah, someone has to die for you to live. That's not easy. That is not easy. And I can imagine that there's this part of you that's like, I need someone to die. I don't want to wish away someone's life. I have not been in that position, but I can imagine there's this push-pull sensation of like, I need a liver. I just wish someone didn't have to die for me to get it. This is what was told to me. I woke up from my third surgery in the month of May 2020, and they said, John, you're going to Penn to get a transplant. I was like, cool. Dr. Altoff comes in and says, 
John, we found a donor we're 100% confident it's a match for you. Isn't that great? I'm like, yeah. We just have to wait for the family to say goodbye. And I'm like, oh, my God. Because I know I probably have about 48 hours. I couldn't rush that. I was like, can't, no. I was like, no, take all the time you need. I'm going to stay alive. You mean you had 48 hours to live at that point? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it was bad. I was basically pee in blood. Yeah. Through this time, because, you know, what you have been through is more than people will experience in a lifetime. I'm really interested in that emotional roller coaster and that thought process that you went through in those years that you were in and out of surgery, in and out of strokes, in and out of waiting for a transplant. Given the history that you've just explained to us, what was happening for you internally during that time? Well, we talked about my mother briefly before we started. My mother was a major influence in my life. And when I walked out of the hospital after being given two months to live, my mother had a three-year battle with cancer, with lymphoma. And I was so proud of her. And I thought, and this was my game plan. I thought, well, you know, John, if you can be half as strong as her, you'll be okay. I was like, I can do that. I can do that. Oh, by the way, Allie, when they took my liver out, they found cancer. And uh, guess where I was today? I had to get tested every three months for five years. Tests were good today. Yay! Um, <laughs> Seventh time I've wanted to jump through the screen and cuddle you. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Woo! yes. But my mom's last words before she died, two words positive thoughts. And if she could have them at that moment, I had them every day. And that was a life changer for me. Every day. John Jones was a friend of mine, first uh, waiting room friend. He died and I had positive thoughts. His death crushed me, but I was like, I'm doing this for John. I, I'm the, we're both not going down. This is good. I'm going to do it, John. Positive thoughts. And how do you be positive in such, you know, overwhelming odds? Well, you just do it. You just do it. That's doing the work to live. I'm a big believer. And if you can look in the mirror and say, I did everything I could, no matter what happens, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. I think sometimes that's the gift that you get from facing death head on is it's like, I don't have an option here. I look down one road and I'm gone and the other road i got to fight freaking hard for. And am I prepared to do that? The minute you step on that road, you're on, right? Like you're in the biggest game of your life, the fastest, the most dynamic, the hardest. It's a long endurance sweat session, but you've got to bring your A game because you're not going to get through it if you don't. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, the I mean, if you asked me before transplant what I was doing for Christmas, my answer was, Allie, give me a break. I'm trying to make it to tomorrow. And I would appreciate every tomorrow. It's great. I still do. It's a great feeling. I was trained by the Gottman Institute in my profession and I love them. And Dr. Gottman talks about sliding door moments. Do we want to go in the dark door or the, the happy door? 
And uh, literally, I'll choose the happy door every time, no matter what the situation is. Literally getting my blood test today, the dark door. And I was a month late, so I was really nervous. And I was like, hey, John, man, go in the good door. And the good door was, well, if they do found cancer, I'm going to kick its ass. I've done this, and I can do it again, and I will do it again. And I have no doubt in my mind about it. And I just also want to name, you've you've talked about some of the people you've trained with. Not everyone's going to be aware of this, but these are some of the best in the world. Like, I'm just going to highlight, you have been, <laughs> you know, when we talk about, you know, the five people we spend your most time with is have a big influence on you. Just some of the people that you've named already, I'm like, mate, put you in a room with them for a couple of days and and it's really going to have an impact on the way that you think, the way that you reflect, the way that you assess, the way that you decide to drive forwards. And when we're thinking about the challenges that change us, the name of this podcast, what you came on for here today, when I say those words, challenges that change us, what is it that pops into your mind? The biggest challenge was living. Literally the 12 years of waiting for transplant, every year I lost someone in the loan and I would have to go to Penn two and a half hours away. And when I was 20 miles away, I would start shaking. And the reason I would start shaking is I thought, this is the place I'm going to go to one day to die. And that was really scary, but I was very lucky. Because when I parked the car, each of these visits, and I walked in the hospital, I walked in with a confidence I never knew I had. I was the most confident person in that hospital, in that waiting room. And I would connect with everyone and give them hope. And that changed me. It changed me, that challenge of I'm going to die too. You know what? We're in this together and we're going to beat it together. Whatever it is, whatever that person in the hospital was. And when I talk about change, I was in the grocery store today and a woman looked sad and I went up to her. I was like, hey, it's going to be okay. Talk to me. What's going on? You know, you're hitting here all the time. I see you. You okay? Let's talk. And she just told me she was a little sad about her daughter. And I didn't want her to feel alone. You know, and we talked and she it was so nice. I don't know her name, but she said, thank you so much. That was so kind. It's a great feeling. And it took me back to the days of going to Penn. And uh, on a side note, I'll never forget. I had a follow-up appointment at Penn, you know, three months later. And I'm driving there. I'm 20 miles away and I started laughing. <laughs> I was like, I can't believe I would be shaking thinking this was going to die. And I wasted all that time worrying and worrying. Yet when I went into the hospital, I, it was so good. And, you know, again, the, that challenge to live. I mean, again, Ali, I saw 15 people die. That was a challenge. Like, honestly, I believe my family members and, and people in my life are like, how the hell are you still alive? And I'm really proud of that because my Princeton brother and sister, I was, you know, very close to my mom. 
And they once said to me at two different times, you know, John, if mom were alive today, she'd be prouder of you than any of us. That's all I want is my mom to be proud of me. I was uh, the fifth child, but the ninth pregnancy. I didn't know until I was diagnosed with cirrhosis. I didn't realize that, oh, my God. I was the last pregnancy, and there I was given two months to live. You're damn right I wasn't going to die. I wasn't going to allow that to happen to her or me. No, she went through too much to give birth to me. I wasn't going to blow that. So that, that really changed me, and to this day it changes me. John, what would you say to your mom today if she was sitting here across from you? As a kid... She used to hold me in her arms and make me listen to Barbara Streisand. People who need people are the luckiest people in the world. And she wanted to really impress upon me at this young age how important that was. Fast forward years later and alone. And we'd listen to that song and then she'd say, do you love me? With a big smile on her face. And I'd say, yeah, mom, I love you. And in school, we were learning numbers. And she would say, how much? How much do you love me? And I know the biggest number is infinity. And I would say, mom, I love you to infinity. So today, I would tell her I love her to infinity. I know she knows what it means. And she would cry her eyes out, and I would too. Only my closest friends, every phone call, we end with the word infinity. I'd give anything to have that moment with my mom. But, you know, the reason that poster of my mom is right behind me is because, to me, she's not dead. In every session, my mom was a therapist. In every session I do, she's telling me what to say. On some level, we're saying, John, that was good. Where she's right on my shoulder. And it, yeah, I want her to be proud of me. She did say to me when I first got into this profession, and I never knew what it meant. She said, John, you have a gift. I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, you see people. You see them. And I never knew what it meant until I started working really with couples. And I would say things like, Allie, let me let me see if I hear you right. You're sitting there going, oh, my God, this guy, John, I wasn't ready for this. <laughs> I wasn't ready. How this is fascinating. I really could do this for hours more. And you would sit there and go, how did you know that? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So that's what I would say to my mom. <laughs> I love you to infinity. When you're talking about you see people, I mean, if we listen to your words that you've told us today and shared with us, when you talk about that lady in the grocery store and you walked up to her and you said, you look sad, what's going on for you? You were seeing her in that moment, in that point in time. And if we listen and track back through your story, it's what you've needed your whole life is for one person, someone to stand beside you and say, I see you. I hear you. I'm here with you. And Allie, no one's ever done that. No one's ever done that. I will say 
my wife, who's amazing. But I had my stroke, life support for five days, never knowing whether I was going to wake up again or not. And when I opened my eyes, there she was holding my hand. I wasn't alone in that moment. What did that mean for you when you woke up and she was there holding your hand? She's never let go. It meant everything. And I saw her. She had the look of, is he is he okay? Is he with us? And funny part of the story, you know, the doctor comes in right away. Like, is he here? Is he with us? And there's my wife holding my hand. And I look a little bit more to the left. And there's my mother-in-law. And I have the tube down my throat. <laughs> and I make a face like, ew. <laughs> and they're like, that's John. He's with us. He's there. We all laughed. <laughs> we got him. He's back. <laughs> He's back. <laughs> he made a face about his mother-in-law. He, and I loved this woman to death. I loved her to death. But it was, uh, it was such a great moment. And I didn't feel alone with her either. I mean, it was... It was good. You know, the uh, alone thing, you know, yeah, I'd say my wife, yeah, Sherry, she's done a spectacular job of, I honestly fight her on it because I don't know how to deal with it. Mm. Well, it's so unfamiliar to you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How do you sit there and accept love and nurture and warmth and to be seen, to be in someone's full vision and full presence? That would be hard, I'd imagine. I don't know how. I, I, I and I mean that. I, I literally, it's hard for me to feel love. I know she loves me. I know that it's really hard to accept. I, I guess on some level, I don't think I'm worth it. If I'm being really honest, I. Uh, but I look at you know when I got back into this field and completed my training at the Gottman Institute. I couldn't afford an office. My wife and I were dating and I go over to her house to bitch and complain. I'm like, I can't believe this. I wanted to do this. I know me. I'm not going to be able to save money. I just wasted what I had. And she says to me, well, why don't you just use my living room? And I'm like, what? And she says, yeah, just use my living room. I'm like, you realize you're going to have people coming in your house that you don't know, and they don't like each other. That's crazy. And she said, well, just put up two doors to make it private for you so you can work. And I was confused. And I was like, why would you do that? And her answer was the number one thing I learned at the Gottman Institute. She said, you said it was your dream. I want you to have your dream. That was 12 years ago. Now I'm nationally recognized in this country. We live on the water. We have a boat. My dream, my dream. She's honored these dreams. And she went through a business divorce and had to start up her company. I dropped everything to honor that dream. It's so important. And yeah, I would say she's the only one ever that's been honored my dreams. Definitely. Yeah. And that feels really good feels great so and since this is my dream working 15 hours a day for seven days a week 
Allie, I don't work. I'm living my dream. Again, we're still going to have a conversation about that on a separate phone call. Um, (laughs) I don't feel like I work and I know there's not a lot of people in the world that have that experience. You know, getting on here for the podcast today, at no point do I consider that I'm coming into work. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to have this amazing conversation. I'm so excited to meet John on the other side of the world. And I'm so privileged and honored to be in this position, to be able to be well enough and to connect with you today. Like what an amazing life, really. But I think that comes from facing death. That comes from getting really freaking crystal clear on what your priorities in life are and they being the streetlights that light up your life, light it up like it's a pitch black night and someone's just flicked the streetlights on because I'm so clear on what matters to me and how I want to live my life that decisions become easier. They're not hard because it's like, does that align with my values? Does that align with where my partner and I and the kids and I want to go? It's a hell yes from me or it's a hell no from me because the gift that got given to me was that clarity on my values. My mission and vision change all the time. Like my vehicle and how I work with people changes all the time, but that really core essence doesn't. And I think that's what, as you're talking, there have been so many gold nuggets And so many, like, I really do encourage our audience to and our listeners to go back and listen to this a few times because we just chat chat, right? The whole way we were like, bloop, 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 bloop. But any one of those snippets, take three minutes of any one of this podcast and re-listen to three minutes and I guarantee you there's a gold nugget in that moment. Can I give you one? Yes, I would love one. Amazing one. Highlight of my transplant experience. One day I'm in the waiting room. And I would talk to any transplant patient because we're in that same boat. And Penn was building a new wing, new building. And giving hope, I look out the window and I'm talking to this transplant patient. I said, hey, you know what's really cool about that building? She said, what? I said, by the time that building's up, we'll have our transplants. We'll have had it. It'll be so cool. And I was five years off. But um, she says to me, what do you want to be remembered for? And I was like, whoa, what do you know that I don't know? What are you trying to tell me here? And she goes, no, I want to know. What do you want to be remembered for? And I thought about it, and I wanted to give her an answer that sounded good. Profound, really, an answer that sounded profound. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And I said, I want to be remembered for loving and accepting everyone for exactly who they are, and maybe making them laugh a little bit. And I thought, nailed it. She'll love it. And then she said, are you living that way? And I was like, whoa. (laughs) And I said to her, you know, I don't really know if I am living that way. I don't know if I'm loving except everyone. And, you know, laughing, yeah, that I know. But loving except everyone for exactly who they are, I don't know if I'm doing that. And she said, well, why don't you try? And that changed my life. So that woman in the grocery store, I didn't see, nah, no. I I wanted to love her and accept her for exactly who she was. That's And that was definitely life-changing. And that's that, are we showing up through that? You know, it's easy to slap some words up on the wall and say, my values are family or love or whatever they are. But are we truly showing up for ourselves and the people we care about in that way? Like what behaviors, 
What language inside our head? What stories are we telling ourselves? What experiences are we creating around us that live in and through that? You know, we really have to be honest with ourselves. Are we living the way we want to? My answer sounded so good. I thought she's she'll like me. <laughs> she'll approve. And it was good. And yeah, we we have to make those decisions. I was gonna ask you, but I think you've answered my question. I was sitting there reflecting as you're talking just a moment ago, you know, not being present in the conversation. So I'm gonna own that space because I was thinking, I've only got 10 minutes left with him. I want to ask him all these questions. And so I did filter away for a moment and I was thinking, I wonder when you think back through some of your life lessons, what have the simplest ones been? I'll never forget. I had a moment. uh, I didn't really get along with my dad through everything, but I had a moment I was trying to decide what college to go to. And I purposely looked to connect with him on this. I thought, I'll go to dad and ask his advice. Dad, what college should I choose? And he said to me, do whatever makes you happy. And I was like, 17 years old. Are you kidding me? Dad, I'm coming to you as a kid. You're my father. I need your help. That was probably some of the best advice I ever got. I talked about that. I gave his eulogy. And I told the story of that moment. And at 17 years old, I saw that advice as bad. And today, I see it as some of the best advice I ever had. You know, and be honest with yourself, do whatever makes you happy. And you really have to look at that global picture. Are you doing it at someone's expense? How do you feel about that? Are you able to do what makes you happy? We only got one shot here. So. Happy is not a four-letter word. (laughs) We can say it. (laughs) And you don't get time back. No. You know, you don't get those moments back. Life is full of ups and downs. Like listening to your story, John, it's like it has not been all rainbows and unicorns, but the richness that can come out of adversity is phenomenal when you can step back and look back on it. You know, it's not denying the hard moments or the hard times or the dark times, but it can really give you a gift. Ali, I'm... I'm really lucky. I am very lucky. Not only to be alive, but to be aware of life. And connection. Like, that's the big thing we've been talking about. The fact that you are so in tune with what it now means to be connected and how you want to live into that and help other people, like marriage counseling, right? Like, that is the bee's knees of how do we help people connect when they're turning outwards, if that's where they're at, facing outwards. How do we get them to flip that around to face inwards? It's about connection. It's about being seen. It's about being valued. It's about acceptance. It's about having the hopes and dreams together. It doesn't need to be the same one, but what's that common ground that you're working towards? And are you lifting the other person up and out, or are you trying to put a cover over them? So that you can lift up and out. Like we've had all of these conversations throughout today. Some of them may have been in disguise, but if again, if you go back and listen, you might hear some of these things a little bit more. John, let's talk about what you're doing now because it's pretty cool what you're doing with your work and we have sprinkled a little bit around that. Do you want to kind of just let us know what does your life look like now? Well, I work a lot. We clarified that. Of course. <laughs> again, a different conversation. <laughs> yeah, here's, uh, Ali, you're going to think I'm crazy. I created a model, a model for my work. I don't believe in the hour model of, oh, Ali, you're saying something important right now? Really? I need your credit card. It's time to pay. 
got to go. I don't believe in that. I can do it. But what I am known for is I've created a model where I charge per session, not per hour. And I really don't care how long it goes. I want them to walk out or zoom out better than they started. Typically, it goes somewhere around three hours. In addition to the session, between sessions, they can call anytime they want. While we've been talking, I've received three phone calls. And if we talk for an hour, it's included. And I've created this model, Gottman work, but I've created this model because I believe this is their life. And I can't just say, I'm sorry, Ali, time's up today. We'll have to pick this up next week. Research says it takes six years of problems to pick up the phone and make a call. Initially, when I had the first call with the couple, I talked to the man and the woman individually for an hour or so, each of them. Because if you both don't feel comfortable with who you're working with, you're wasting your time and your money. And you know, when there's children involved, mom and dad aren't my, aren't my client. The kids are. And what I mean by that is the best gift those children can get from their parents is mom and dad to be good. That's the best gift. And honestly, a little sense of humor. I don't like married people. I like couples. And I'll never forget, we were in this town and they had an open air bus. And this 80-year-old couple came on. There was a dozen of us on this thing. They didn't even know anyone else was on it. I was like, look at that couple. They're incredible. Obviously, they were married, but they were so connected. They were a couple. And I like in my model to create couples. Sound relationship house in Gottman's world. How do you create shared meaning with your partner? It's huge, huge. It's huge. It really is. And that's something that, you know, I never take for granted is my partner and I just, we are so in tune and care so deeply and respect so deeply and accept so deeply and support so deeply that I'm the luckiest woman in the world because he meets me in that space every day. So thank you so much, John, for sharing that. How do people find you? My website, lifebridgecoaching.com. We'll pop that in the show notes as well. If you Google lifebridgecoaching.com, you'll see over 235 star reviews that will give you an indication of how I work. I work with people in your country. I work all over the world. So I'm on LinkedIn. You and I connect on LinkedIn. I have an Instagram account, life underscore bridge underscore coaching underscore. Anyone can call me anytime they want. I'm wondering if there's something I haven't asked you today that you would like our listeners to know or something from your world and your experience that you're like, you know what, this is something I don't want to get off today without having the conversation about. The most important thing I would say is regarding drinking, if you have any worries at all, get your blood tested. Blood don't lie. Now, here's the, the problem of cirrhosis. You're not given a warning. Six months before I was given two months to live, I went in for a stomach issue and I thought, I'm busted. They're going to give me shit about my drinking. They didn't say a word. So, but they weren't looking for it because I didn't say anything. But there's two blood tests, ALT and AST. And if one of the numbers is roughly double the other, that's alcohol. That's a problem. But your liver does not give you two weeks notice. When it's, you know what cirrhosis is? 
It's scar tissue. Scars don't heal. That's what it is. So people say, oh, the liver regenerates. Yes, it does when it's healthy. But when it's scarred, that's it. It's done. So, yeah, people believe that they're justifying their drinking. Oh, yeah, the liver regenerates. It'll be fine. One day it says, nope, we're done. And when people ask me how much I drank, you're not going to like my answer. However much I drank, my body said it was too much. My body determined it was too much. I had a guy that would drink a bottle of Jack Daniels a night. He got cirrhosis 10 years after I did. He drank more than me. And his liver one day said, that's it. And you know what he did? He went and blew his brains out. He said, I, I can't do that. I can't live like what you did, John. Can't do it. So that's, I would say, get your blood checked. Blood don't lie. John, thank you so much for coming on today. It took us quite a few goes to actually get this conversation, but geez, what a goodie. I love to finish every episode with asking our guests who or what in your world truly makes you barely laugh. That is such a great question. I love it. I would say myself, my friends, laughing at ourselves when we do something as a dear friend of mine says, Stupid. <laughs> when I do something stupid, it's it literally makes me belly laugh. I love it. And it, it's such a great compliment to our friends that we can laugh, belly laugh with each other when we did something stupid. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget a little graphic for you, but I had a client where I belly laughed. The guy says to me, John. Her mother is so far up my ass. When I take a shit, she's the first to know. I I just started cracking up. Oh, that that was one of the biggest times I ever laughed in a session. (laughs) He's like, I'm serious. I'm like, she knows before you? Yep. (laughs) I just kept laughing. And it's the joy that that laughter brings, isn't it? It's contagious. And it's like, automatically start to feel light. Just just having that little laugh is enough just to be like, huh, there's a breath, there's a moment in time that I'm okay. I'll tell you, I, I'll encourage you to watch on YouTube, Jim Valvano. For the first year I was diagnosed, I watched this every day. Just Google Jim Valvano speech. He said, there are three things you should do every day. You should laugh, you should think, and you should cry. And think about it. If you laugh, think, and cry every day, that's a full day. You will love it, Allie. Jim Valvano, ESPN. It's a, such a great speech. I'm on it. Um, no one call me in the next hour. <laughs> <laughs> All right, John, we are going to have to finish up because you've got another appointment and I feel really pushed for time because there's so many more questions I want to ask you. But thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for coming on and sharing your story. But more importantly, for just being so freaking real, like just for being so transparent and honest and just real. Thank you, Allie. Thank you. I. Thank you. I was really looking forward to this. It's hard to say alone and stuff like that. But as I say to my clients, these feelings, these thoughts you have inside you are like cancer. And all you have to do is talk about them to get them out. So I got rid of some cancer today. So thank you. 
<laughs> yeah, the old, you know, I always say it as well. It's like secrecy builds shame. It's like the breeding ground for it. So what happens when we start to talk about it, when we start to share our experiences, when we have a witness to our experiences and our language and our stories is we're not living in that silence shame space anymore. It's good stuff. And that's a wrap on today's powerful episode. I hope John's story has touched your hearts as much as it did mine. If you found inspiration, wisdom, or simply connection in his journey, don't keep it to yourself. Share this episode with your friends, families, or anyone who you think might benefit from the strength and the resilience we witnessed today. Before you go, I want to ask a little favor. If possible, could you duck into your podcast platform, the one that you listened to this very episode on, and leave a review? What that does is that helps us share every story that we have on this podcast. It helps grow our audience. It helps us have a bigger impact, not only nationally around Australia, but also internationally all around the world. But your feedback is what fuels my passion. Like I cannot tell you whenever I get a DM, a text message, I see one of those reviews pop up. I'm like, I'm going to do another 10 more or I'm going to do this for another year or, oh my God, I need to find another guest. Like it's, it's like this little spark inside me goes off every time I hear from one of my beautiful, beautiful community. So it really does mean the world to me if you go on and leave one of those reviews. And remember, you are not alone in facing life's challenges. We are a community and together we can learn, grow and thrive. Thank you for being a part of challenges that change us. And until next week, Stay legendary, stay resilient, and keep embracing those challenges that change us for the better. See you guys soon. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode. Oh, 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 oh,